Okay, we are in session four now for those, or no, session five, for uh, those of you who are keeping track. We will be talking about immutability. And these last two sessions, in some sense, will be the ones that get to interact most with, let's say, interesting questions we tend to ask on a daily basis. So everything else has been kind of setting up the foundation to get to immutability and providence, and really how those attributes interact with common objections to Christianity and common questions that Christian ask, Christians ask about their faith, their belief, and how they relate to uh, how they relate to the world. How does God relate to His creation? One of the things we need to establish uh, at this point is is kind of one more piece to the puzzle uh, that we've been kind of building so far. So I've already said that we can only know God through His self revelation to us. Uh, then we kind of advanced that and said, so God reveals himself to us as self-sufficient, not dependent on his creatures. He reveals himself to us as triune. Uh, and there's a lot of ways we could misunderstand that triune revelation. And so we have to be careful with that. And then he also reveals himself to us, as Tim just talked about, simplistically, uh, in a way that we can understand the simplicity of him, but also not comprehend the vastness and expansiveness of that. And now the, the last piece that we need to understand is that as scripture speaks about God, it speaks about God in analogical terms, not in univocal terms. So those are the two, two words you see there on your sheet. Uh, there is a great danger in screwing up the difference between analogical language about God and univocal language about God. Now, I will define those for you so you uh, <laughs> don't, don't fear. Um, univocal means uh, as it is. So... When, when, if scripture were to speak univocally about God at all points, when Israel speaks about God having a strong right hand, which is mighty to save, uh, univocal language would say that God physically has a right arm. Does that make sense? So it speaks about him as he is. It just speaks plainly. That's univocal language. It is impossible for human language to speak univocally about God. All of scripture, when speaking about God, speaks about him analogically in a way that we can understand, that is true understanding, but we can't press the analogy to points where they contradict other revelations about God. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of this. One example, uh, as we think about the Son, we think about the Son and the Father, right? Now that is, that is analogical language. Because the, as you think about a human father and son, well, a human son is created by a father and a mother together interacting and, and creating offspring. That is not how the father and the son are. That makes sense. So the language cannot be univocal because there's not a, a mother involved as well. There, it's, it's analogical. It's language that helps us understand how the first and second person of the Trinity relate to each other as father and as son. But it, it, it can't be pressed to say, therefore, there must be a mother involved. Does that make sense? So it, it speaks about him in analogical terms, not in univocal terms. Similarly, as we say the Son is begotten of the Father, the term begotten itself is an analogical term, not a univocal term. Because if you and I beget something, uh, for example, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, these are subsequent generations of humans. Which means there was a time where one wasn't that they came into existence in. So even the begetting of the son is analogically understood, not univocally understood. 
if, for instance, Calvin was born and we celebrated his one-year birthday only a couple weeks ago. He was begotten at a certain point in time, and I can truly say that that is accurate language to speak about my son. But I can't press that analogy to say, therefore, there was a time when Christ was not in existence in the universe because he too was begotten, right? The begetting is an analogical way for us to understand how the father and son relate. It doesn't univocally speak about that to say that we can press the begetting to say, therefore, Jesus was created at some point in time. Now, the reason this is a, a difficult concept for us to understand is because we, we tend to think, because of our experience with the world, that, that things must be univocal in order to be understood. One of the ways you could think about this is Scripture can accurately speak about God analogically while not being unintelligible. So this is, this is uh, one of the common critiques of uh, secular scholars who look at the Bible, who read it, and say, these things can't all be true at the same time. They would say, either it's univocal and inaccurate, um, or we're picking and choosing our analogies, and therefore it's unintelligible, right? So they would, they would conclude that, therefore, Scripture is an unintelligible revelation of humans speculating about God. But Scripture can be analogical and intelligible, because what it does for us is it paints for us a composite picture of God that when you put all the composites together, you have an accurate representation of God, but you can't press any of those analogies too far. That would be to distort the picture scripture gives us of God. For instance, God is revealed to us as Father. We, we call him Father God. We pray to him as Father. We pray to him as Lord and Son. And we pray to him as Spirit. And we can also rightly speak about God having motherly qualities. He he is the hen which gathers its chicks under its wings, right? That is an an analogy which paints for us a picture about how he relates to his people. He is our husband as as the church. We are his bride. That is also analogical language. It does not not univocally mean the same thing that a husband today and a wife today would have to relate in that same capacity. It's analogical. Speaking of the intimacy of the relationship, but not speaking univocally about all of the parts and facets of that relationship. So that needs to be understood because there's many texts in scripture which seem to threaten attributes of God if you take them univocally and not analogically. Okay? So let me define uh, immutability and then we'll talk about how this kind of comes into play in the text of scripture. So the immutability of God is simply that God is unchanging. So if something mutates, it changes. Uh, a mutation is a change. For something to be immutable means it is not able to change. It is unchanging. Okay? You and I have a very, we, it, this is impossible for us to understand because everything in our world is mutable. The only way we can know that God is immutable is if he tells us he's immutable. We cannot comprehend what immutability is like. Even the things which are most permanent in our minds. Think about uh, a landmark, uh, something in the created world something out there in the, in the cosmos, in the universe. All of those things are mutable. Draw it out for enough time, for enough uh, of a runway, it will change over time. Predictions are that eventually the sun will go out, the flame will be extinguished, and there will be no more uh, atoms to smash together for fusion to be made, and so therefore the sun will go dark. It will cease to give its light. That is, the sun, is, it's hard to think about something in our solar system that's more unchanging than the sun. And yet the sun is mutable, drawn out over enough time. So to our mountains, so to our rivers, so to are the oceans, so to are the continents themselves, which move and shift. They are mutable. 
Everything in our world is mutable. God is immutable. And so the only way we can understand immutability is for God to define it for us, to explain it to us, and for us to say at a certain point in time, we entrust ourselves to his mystery because immutability is impossible for our minds to grasp. It really is. So then we come to many texts in scripture that speak about the immutability of God. Um, And there, I'll just read for you a couple. I'll list them as well so you could write them down if you wanted to. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. That's Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 17, says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no variation or shadow in him due to change. James chapter 1, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. And one of the longer ones, and one that I personally love, Psalm 102, verse 25. From of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. Now, because we live, for example, with our clothing, in, we, we can outlast the clothes that we wear, right? Even think about when you were a child and you wore certain size clothes, or even as an adult, you might outwear clothes, right? How many of you have ever pulled out a pair of socks from your drawer and realized there's a hole in it? You've worn out the socks. In relationship to how we are to our clothes, we understand what changing is like, what a garment is like. Now, the illustration of the psalm is that the created world in its foundational roots, the cosmos itself, the world itself, is like a garment to God, which he can wear and take off. It's something that he is so beyond that he can outwear it. He can outlast it. Now, that is quite literally impossible for us to understand. So God gives us an analogy. He tells us it's like clothes that he can wear out over time. Or Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 And this one will be core to understanding of God's immutability. How does he relate to the world? God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So here's Moses writing in the book of Numbers about what God is like. And he says, God does not lie. God does not change his mind. Now that is to be understood as as a direct revelation of God through Moses to his people. And that helps us to understand other parts of the Exodus story that Moses also writes, where God says things like, I repent, or I regret that I have led this people out of bondage, or I will destroy this people. And then Moses seems to intercede and change God's mind. And here Moses writing in number says, actually God's mind never changes. So how are we to understand all these things together? Well, we have to understand them in terms of analogy. An analogical language helps us understand how God can simultaneously repent, uh, relent from doing disaster on someone and also be a God who's immutable and never changes. That makes sense. So we have to kind of draw these pieces together. With uh, this doctrine of immutability, there's at least two beliefs that you need to be aware of that are present in our world today that describe for us, let's say, the dangers of not, not holding to immutability. One of them is, I think, the more dangerous of the two, although both are really dangerous beliefs. One of them is called process theology. 
This is the idea that God uh, progresses and proceeds over time. So you think about processes that work out in our lives. You think about a process like puberty, right? When someone's going through puberty, they change over time through interactions and circumstances and hormones and eating food and sleeping. They change over that process. Process theology says God is like that as he relates to his creation. So God creates the world. That's a process in which God changes. And as history unravels itself into the future, God will continue to change. God is influenced by then the decisions of his creatures and the actions and activities and as he relates to them. So for instance, as God leads Israel out of bondage in Egypt, process theology would say he's actually rather temperamental. He's sometimes very angry with the Israelites. Sometimes he's feeling quite pleased with them. But he's processing with them over time such that in the, it, when he finally uh, destroys them in the exile and banishes them to Babylon, that's him proceeding. He's, he's changed his mind about Israel and how he feels about them, so he punishes them accordingly. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, he's processed again, and now he wants to redeem his people because he loves them. Process theology says God interacts and changes as he relates to humans. There's a, a second belief that is like that, called open theism, which is a little bit different than process theology because what open theism says is not that God changes as a response to interacting with humans, but that God willingly limits himself. He imposes a limit upon himself and, and he limits his immutability. So open theists suggest that God voluntarily limits his knowledge of the free choices that humans will make over time. And thus it allows for humans to be genuinely free in the world. So in order for God to allow humans to be free, he limits himself. And thus, as decisions happen, as humans make up their mind, as humans make choices, God is learning information which he has limited himself from previously knowing, which also means that he changes because, well, if you make a decision now that you, because of new information that you got, you learn something, that is a change. Think about any student as a freshman in college enrolling in a program. When they're a senior, they graduate. They might have the same haircut, the same clothes, the same, the same everything about them. And yet they've changed in that they've learned new information over the course of that time. That is a change rightly defined. And so if God learns information that he didn't know before over the course of interacting with creation, he also changes over time. It's a little bit of a, when I say a weaker position, I mean it's a more tame position than process theology, but I think it, it is kind of out there as well. Now, both of these positions often land people in the position where say, they say things like, well, in the New Testament, God has processed to a place where we can rightly love him and enjoy him and experience his mercy. And these are things which he did not have in that same kind of form and gravity early on in scripture. So for example, we read about the Israelites driving the foreign peoples out of the promised land. And we say, whatever God they were worshiping there, either it was a lesser God, as, the, as, the, uh, as Marcion would say, or, or maybe it was God figuring out how he relates to humanity. And then in the New Testament, he's shown perfection of love, mercy, holiness, grace. But really, God has changed over time. J.I. Packer speaks to this, and he says, actually, the only tether that we have between the Old and New Testament is the immutability of God. If God is not immutable, don't read your Old Testament. If God is not immutable, don't even read your New Testament. It's 2,000 years out of date. But because God is immutable, 
we can read our Old Testament, we can read our New Testament, and we can learn things that are true about God. When you guys were in college, it is likely that you had this experience that I did, where you go to order your textbooks for the semester for class, and because I was a science major, uh, every single year they're coming out with a new edition of whatever the textbook is. So for example, the chemistry book that we had to buy from Pearson was like 150 bucks with the whole kit, and it contained new information from the textbook that had just been published two years prior that was now selling for $20 online used. That is how quickly the science changed in the course of just two years. Updates were made, new practice problems were given, such that the new textbook was infinitely more valuable than the old textbook was. That's in two years' time. Now imagine someone pens a thought about God from 4,000 years ago. Daniel writes a prophecy about what God is like and how he's faithful to his people. How can you trust that that's still true about God thousands of years after that prophecy was written? Thousands of years after that revelation was recorded. David, in Psalm 51, talks about God being merciful to forgive his sin. How can you trust that God's still like that if he changes over time? It's not a, it's not a worthwhile or valuable revelation. If God is not immutable, don't read your Bible. J.I. Packer says the immutability of God is the foundation upon which our Bible reading is founded. It's the foundation upon which our reading of the New Testament is founded. A.W. Pink says it this way, He cannot change for better because he's already perfect. And being perfect, he can't change for the worse either. The conclusion of all of these things is really simple. The sense of distance between us and the text of Scripture is non-existent because it's the same God who we read about on those pages as well. Different cultures, different times, different peoples, same God. So you see the danger of process theology and open theism. Now let's consider a case study. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to do a case study of open theism and process theology as it relates to immutability. And I trust you will see very quickly in Genesis 6 where we are bumping into a problem. So I want to start reading in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. There's a lot of interesting stuff that happens before that, which we will not go into tonight. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, And the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great upon the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of this land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I read that out of the ESV. If you had a different translation that you were looking at, uh, it might say something like God repented that he had made man upon the earth, something to that effect. The, The thrust of it is the same. Man is wicked. God sees man is wicked. God says, I regret that this has happened. I'm sorry that I've made man. I will blot them out. Now, here's the question. Doesn't a text like that, haven't you read your Bible? Can't you see that that shows that God is not immutable? Doesn't that obviously show that God changes as he relates to his creation? God at once was favorable towards man, preserved them in their disobedience in the garden, but now he's fed up with mankind, and so he's changed his mind. He's going to destroy them now. You can see how a cursory reading of the text leads you to that kind of a conclusion. But this is where we have to understand what I started with, the difference between analogical language about God and univocal language about God. So if this is univocally speaking about God, God as he actually is, 
we are forced to the conclusion that God does change his mind, that God has differently related to man now than he previously did, and thus we can draw a conclusion about the character of God, he will change in relation to us as well. So you, Christian, as you interact with God, if you sin, he might eventually get fed up with you and discard you. He might eventually drop you because you're just too wicked for him. He might be fed up with your wickedness, your slowness to be obedient, your sinfulness, and he'll just say, I'm done with this person. I will drop them from my faithfulness. That's not an attribute of God worth worshiping. But instead, what scripture gives us here is an uni- uh, analogical picture of God. It is not that God did not know that man was wicked to this degree. It is not that God did not know that man would rebel in this way. In fact, in Genesis 3.15, God predicts a savior for mankind, which will ultimately triumph over the serpent. And in order to make that prediction, he has to know things beyond the next 30 years, 300 years of human existence. Instead, God judges man's sin rightfully and truly and analogically speaks about his relation to man saying, because you have sinned, I will act in this way. But it is not as though God is changing his mind. Ultimately, the unchanging nature of God's character is seen in Christ's death on the cross, where over the course of redemptive history, God proves his steadfast faithfulness to his people, proves that he is a covenant-keeping God, and proves that he is the God who will blot out sin from his world. It's actually all immutably part of who he is. He doesn't change his mind. He's not temperamental. He's a loving, steadfast, and faithful God who ultimately does punish sin, and ultimately is perfectly merciful to his people who are called his. So in Christ, you have the answer to the immutability problem of God. It is not as though God is temperamental and that he'll be temperamental with you. It's that God is immutable, and in Christ, his wrath is dealt with. In Christ, his love is displayed. And also, in Christ, you and I have the confidence that that is true of us as well. So when you confess sin before God, you don't have to worry, will he forgive me this time? Or is he going to drop me because I've sinned again? Or does he love me anymore because of how I've acted? God is not a processional creature. God is not a mutable creature. He's immutable in how he relates to his creation. And thus, we have an attribute worth worshiping of the God whom we serve. Okay, I'll take any questions you have, and then I'll give you a little bit of a break before we get into our last session.